Matthew chapter 7 and verse 24. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man, which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. Verse 24 again, Therefore whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, that's the initial assumption. You have heard something from God and doeth them. I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. The, you may not think of the first word to describe that verse, but tonight I want to use that as the foundation to point to the idea of obedience. Obedience. That verse says, whoever hears something, these sayings of mine, Jesus said. In a gener more general sense, if you hear something from God, maybe it is from reading the Bible. Maybe it's from reading the Bible, meditating on the verse, and hearing God speak to you through those verses. In any such case, you have heard something from God, and you do with it. Whoever hears something from God and acts on it. He takes action. That person does and fulfill, or he does fulfill what those words are asking you, commanding you to do. Whoever does that, Jesus said, I'll liken him to a very wise person who built his house upon a rock. You're building something on a foundation that is not going to be destroyed. Obedience. In Christian circles, the, the word obedience, the thought of obedience can mean a lot of different things to different people. So to make sure that we're all thinking generally about the same idea, I want to go back to the, by the book of Joshua. And we're going to look at something that he did, something that describes his life, so that we are all in agreement about what we're talking about when we say obedience. Joshua chapter 11. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, then Joshua chapter 11. <clears throat> now, of course, Joshua, his life is always connected to Moses. God did this remarkable thing of an entire nation of people, people who hadn't known freedom, liberty, or following God quite yet because they had been slaves, they had been uh, severely oppressed in Egypt. God raised up Moses, his servant. His life is amazing. Moses leads the children of Israel out of Egypt. There are some difficulties. It takes a long time, a lot longer to, for Moses to get this group of people to where God wanted them go, to go. But he does get them there. Then Moses passes from the scene. And his second-in-command, Joshua, takes the reins of leadership, of authority in the nation. And God uses Joshua to march these people into their place where God had promised them. Because of that, this verse, Joshua chapter 11, verse 15, summarizes very well Joshua's life. Chapter 11, verse 15. 
As the Lord commanded Moses, his servant, so did Moses command Joshua. That is simply telling us that when God came to Moses and said, I've got this for you to do, Moses did it. He did it as far as his life would take him, and then God took him. When Joshua became leader, Joshua took over for where Moses left off in the same office, in the same intention of following God. And look at the second half of the verse. So did Moses command Joshua, and so did Joshua. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. A couple things there. The Bible says, tells us that Moses was the meekest man in all the earth. And in trying to discover, find out what that means, the meekest, you run into the idea that he was very, very good at listening to what God had said and following through with it. Meek. It's, if you had a meek horse, a meek pet of any sort, the idea is that that thing will follow you. It will do what you ask it to do, what you have trained it to do. Very meek. It doesn't rebel. It doesn't push back against you. Your commands, it really wants to try to please you, its owner. And when Moses was the meekest man in all the earth, reading through his life, look at the miracles that came from Moses' leadership. One reason was because he followed God. When God spoke to him, Moses went out and he told the people. You don't find many instances where Moses said, Sir, that sounds like a stupid command. I think we'll get caught in, a tr in some problems and in trouble following that. Maybe we should think this through. You don't find Moses doing that. He heard God tell him, raise your hand to the ocean and it'll part. And Moses took a step back. He turned around and he raised his staff and the oceans parted. Those kind of things happen throughout all the pages describing Moses' life. Here in Joshua, it tells us that as the Lord commanded Moses, his servants, his servant, so did Moses command Joshua. In other words, Moses turned around and instructed Joshua. You have seen what works and you've seen what doesn't work. And when you step into this office, everybody's different. Everyone has their own personality, their own... Uh, idiosyncrasies, the way that they like to do things. But in generally speaking, Moses instructed Joshua, follow in these footsteps. And this verse tells us that Joshua did just that. Look at the last sentence in verse 15. He, Joshua, he left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. Now the instructions that Moses received wasn't just to plant a few flowers out in the corner and make sure the yard was kept. These were enormous instructions, commandments that Moses received from the Lord. He went up and was talking to God for 40 days and 40 nights receiving the law. He came down and instructed an entire nation of people the things not to do and the things we are to do. And it says that when Moses passed it on to Joshua, 
Even though Moses had gone to heaven, he wasn't there to even crack the whip. Joshua left nothing undone. Now that is a picture of obedience. Joshua never thought, I'm in charge. We'll do things the way I want to do, the own dreams of my own self. This verse tells us that what Moses had passed on to him, even though he was no longer there. If you have ever raised children, if you've even been around children, right now it's very likely a thought is popping into your head of when you instructed a child to do something. Maybe when you were a child you received an instruction from your parents. And if that parent, if that authority figure left, was not present to see that it was carried out, you can probably remember me and my brothers, me and my sister, we knew mom and dad wasn't looking and we didn't follow through. And it may be even a joke. It may be even a, something that you think about with fondness as something you laugh about because you got away with something. Moses left the earth and Joshua left nothing undone. We're talking decades of time spanning to carry this out. And what was on Joshua's mind, does it seem? One of the best descriptions is the first eight verses of the book of Joshua that people know quite well, where it tells us that God commanded Joshua, you be strong, be very courageous, turn not to the left hand or to the right hand, but do diligently everything that I command you. We use those verses when opening up a seminar or a conference on leadership. When it comes to obedience, Joshua was, was at the top of the shelf with Moses. These two men were, are very good examples of following God's commandments. And at, after reading at the beginning of the book where God tells Joshua, don't you turn to the left or the right, you do what I tell you and it's going to go very well for you. You get to the end of Joshua's life and what does it tell us? Joshua left nothing undone that God had spoken to Moses to do. That's the kind of vice president that everybody wants. Somebody that is completely loyal, completely trustworthy. He's not looking for personal gain. He wanted to know what does God want in the earth, and Joshua did his best to make sure that it happened. Now, in describing that, that makes me think of something about the nature of God. How does he deal with this earth? It sure seems that God doesn't just magic pixie dust, wave a magic wand, and something happens on the earth. How does he get it accomplished on the earth? It would sure seem, in most cases, the general scenario is God has a servant be very obedient does exactly what he tells them to do, and something happens in the earth. Now, yes, there are some situations, some examples where there are exceptions to that. God didn't ask somebody, should I open up the earth and swallow the family of Korah who is complaining about me? He just did it. There's examples where God did miraculous things, but for the most part, when God has something happen in the earth and when he is working out his plan, what does he do? talks to his servants. And as you'll see, the people in this Bible, the Abrahams and the Noahs, the Joshuas, the Moses, the Daniels, and the Davids, they're the obedient servants. 
the people he can count on, that he can trust. What did he tell Abraham? He said, I know Abraham will command, not just his own household, but his children after him, that they'll follow me. That's why God used Abraham and his family to bring the nation of Israel where Jesus, the Messiah, would come into the earth. Let's turn there and learn something else about obedience. Let's go to Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis 22 is where Abraham was put to the extreme test after receiving this promised son that he had waited and waited for. What did God tell him to do? Get a sharp knife, get sticks, get a match, go to the top of a mountain that I'll show you, and we're going to sacrifice that boy. And Abraham followed through. He was obedient. It's unbelievable to really read this and think, this person was a human just like me, and he was going to do what God asked him to do. You know how this story ends, and look at verse 18. After Abraham has shown God that he would do anything he told him to do, the angel stops Abraham's hand, and he tells him, I know now that you'll do anything I tell you to do. And look at what one of the rewards was for his obedience. Verse 18, he's telling Abraham, In your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now you and I now live somewhere along the line of 4,000 years since that day. Four, that's a long time. There's a lot of people that have come and gone. Who in this earth is more well known than Abraham? There's not many. The Arabs call him father. The Jews call him father. You and I, our Bible tells us he's the father of our faith. Because Abraham was so obedient that he was going to sacrifice Isaac, God says this entire earth, the words are that in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Lesson number one, there is always a blessing with obedience. When you are obeying God, there's always a blessing. Now for some people to hear that, it's hard for us to axiomatically accept that. That means to accept it without question because some of us have had bad fathers and we can remember, I remember once when I was eight and dad beat me even though I did the right thing. Our earthly fathers aren't always good examples of our heavenly father. Our heavenly father always rewards obedience and he rewards obedience like nothing on this earth. Like nothing. God has spoken and he has shown through many examples in people's lives that he values what above all things. We sometimes call it faith in him. Now this is where the word faith and the word obedience start to, their definitions start to mingle a little bit. It's a good thing. Faith and obedience. When you hear God say something, you know what he wants done and you take action and you march down that path following God. The Bible teaches us that God raises that person up and it calls that person righteous because you believe God. It tells us that about Abraham in Romans. That Abraham believed God and God accounted it to him for righteousness. In other words, God thought of Abraham as a righteous person. Why? Because he obeyed him. 
You could put it another way. You could say because he had faith. But what did he have faith in? He heard that God said, do something and I'll bless you. And what did Abraham do? He said, I bet he's telling me the truth. And he followed that path. Obedience. Always. At some point, you may not recognize the reward of it. There is always a reward with obedience and connection to God. Let's look at maybe the best example. Our Savior. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. We sometimes think that the Bible describing Jesus at the end of the age with having all power. Remember, he even told his disciples that when he was raised from the dead. He said, all power has been given unto me. Sometimes you may think in your mind, well, that's just because he's God's son. I mean, he could be a terrible son, but he, since he's the only one that God has, God gave him the power. That is not biblical. The reason Jesus has all power, all dominion, and all judgment, he earned it. He earned it. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he's going to the cross, he goes to pray and he says, Lord, if there's any way that we can do this some other way, if this cup could pass from me, so be it. Let's find another way. But he ended that by saying, Nevertheless, at thy word. In other words, as long as you say this is the way we're going, I'm there. And he did. Jesus marched to the cross. And Hebrews 12, I told you 11. Hebrews chapter 12. Look at verse 2. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus. This is what you and I are supposed to do. Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And this is what he did. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He endured the cross. Nobody chooses to go to the cross necessarily on their own. That's hard for us in human terms to think of that. This verse speaks of a certain reward. It doesn't use that, re that word, reward, but look at it carefully. Who for the joy that was set before him, there was some certain joy on the other side of the cross that was set in front of Jesus. He knew what he was going to receive for his obedience. Who? For the joy, for the joy. That is another way of saying because or a result. Who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and now is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He sat down at that right hand directly after resurrecting, resurrection from the dead, from paying the penalty of sin. He earned it. Go back to Philippians, a few books. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8. We'll start there. Jesus was the supreme example of obedience. And I don't think it's any coincidence that he, spell, he shares the same spelling of the name as Joshua. Philippians chapter 2 verse 8. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself 
and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. What do you think of when you hear that phrase, he became obedient unto death? I can remember for a while, I, I remember thinking that death was a person, and Jesus obeyed the person called death, and that's not what that is saying. That is saying that he became so obedient to his father, he obeyed him to the end of the road where the result was death. Go back to children, young people that you've ever been around, even adults if they've been under your supervision. How, hard, how far can you get someone to follow you, to be obedient? Supervisors, foremans, managers could probably tell quite the stories of trying to get people to follow their wishes, to carry out their desires at work. Because of human nature, it's a tough thing. You have things called distractions. And getting a person to walk down a certain road is very difficult. So God told Joshua, don't turn to the left, don't turn to the right. You do exactly what I tell you. This verse says that Jesus became obedient all the way until death. If you, if you told someone, gave them directions, and as they kept taking one step farther down the road of directions that you had given them, and things keep getting worse, some thorns prickling, some beating sun down, maybe some, somebody throws a hand grenade. After a while, you're going to question, taking steps down this road I, is not turning out well for me, and you turn back. Jesus kept marching on that road until death, and never turned back. He was obedient unto death. And the next verse tells us what did he gain from that. The next word says, in verse 9, wherefore, that's another word for because, or as a result. As a result, God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That description of all that power, all that authority, that description comes after describing Jesus being obedient all the way through the cross. He earned it. This wasn't, we like to say, it was given him. Technically, that's not really accurate. He earned it. He earned, through his obedience, a reward. And in Hebrews, we just read that it says that for the joy that was set before him, there was something on the other side of the cross that he knew he would receive. There's something in all human nature if you know there's a reward for obedience, obedience gets a lot easier. Anybody remember as a kid asking your mother and father, why do I have to do such and such? And they said, because I told you so. There's no, I can tell you from experience, there's no kid on earth that ever jumps up and down and says, yes, it's because mom and dad told me so. They want to know, what am I going to get? How far after that is the ice cream? How much of a stipend do I get? It's, it's human nature. We all do that. We want to know what's the reward for doing something. Jesus was obedient all the way to death. And it wasn't just a quick, simple death. This death took hours and hours to manifest. Slowly bleeding, slowly swelling up, excruciating pain. He knew something was on the other side of it. 
think the Christian needs to understand something about the nature of our God that we serve. He rewards obedience. Yes, he does. He rewards obedience. Let's go to let's go back to the Old Testament. Go to the Psalms. Psalms chapter 19. <clears throat> Psalm 19, and starting at verse 7, it describes God's law. Look at the the first few words of verse 7. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect. Look at verse 8. The statutes of the Lord are right. It means they're correct, they're accurate, they're they're precise. Verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, it's enduring forever. His judgments are true and righteous altogether. Verse 10 tells us it's more to be desired than fine gold. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 summarizes the commandments of God. Moreover, by them, by those commandments, is thy servant warned. It protects you. And in keeping of them, there is great reward. That verse did not say that there is reward. That verse went out of its way to say there is great reward in keeping God's commandments. God goes out of his way to want to be known in that way. Where we were at in, in Hebrews, it, says, it tells us that all those that come to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And in that verse it says you must, if you're going to find God, if you're going to please him, you have to have the understanding that he is a rewarder of those that seek him. He's a rewarder. God is not a, you know, this does lead into the discussion of, does everybody get the exact same thing? No, we don't. God rewards and he punishes. God is not a socialist. He's not a communist. There are certain rewards. Jesus spoke about greater rewards and greater damnations, greater punishments. There's all kinds of things that, that we sometimes have false impressions about what heaven will be like. God is a rewarder. There was a, there was a, a guy you may have heard me speak about, a guy named Peter Daniels, who I just fell in love with the first time I ever heard him talk. And I heard somebody else describe their initial reaction to listening to this guy speak. And he was sitting in a conference and he said after 10, 15 minutes, he turned to one of his employees and he handed his employee a credit card and he said, I want you to go back to this guy's book table at the front of the church. That's how these speakers do. You go somewhere, they speak, and if you like the things they they say, they, they can't be there all month. So they have their tapes and their books at the front of the church that you can go buy the things that maybe you don't get a chance to hear them speak about. He told his employee, I want you to go to his book table and buy one of everything that he has. Employee grabs a credit card, runs off. A few minutes later, he comes back, and while he's still listening, he whispers behind him in his ear, he he has 80 books at that book table. He turned, I want you to buy me one thing of everything at his book table. Goes to the book table. Five minutes later, he comes back and whispers in his ears, 
one of his books costs $184. The man turns and says, I want you to buy one thing of everything at his book table. Now, that's an example of what sometimes God may ask for in obedience. It doesn't do God much good. It doesn't even do, in that example, an employer someone who's in charge, it doesn't do them much good to have someone working for them who doesn't trust the words that are spoken to them, who simply can't believe that God or my, my supervisor would really want me to do that. If they have to be told over and over, if they have to come back and try to, uh, to cajole a little bit more, put another extra carrot out in front of them, to talk to them about it again, it's very frustrating for the person in charge. Heard that guy speak about that, and he talked about he had every desire to fire that guy by the end of that night. Now, of course, we listen to that and we think, well, I've never paid $184 for a book. Then you can go back and you can tell him, but this is what you told me. And this is why God is so specific about his word. The things that he tells us in here, there is nowhere else to go and say, I wonder if God really meant that. God starts off this book telling us about two people in a garden. He said, don't touch what comes off that tree. Don't touch it. They touched it and God changed the world forever. To teach us that he does mean what he says. This is why people like some of us who see what goes on in our culture outside there, outside the church, and in what happens in many other churches about how they disregard the clear teaching of the Bible. That's why it's so frustrating. It's so disheartening to see churches stand up and take the side of the world in proclaiming certain conclusions on some topics. The Bible is, God goes out of his way to be clear. We just read that in the, in the Psalms. In the few verses before it said that there is great reward in one of those verses, it, sa- it tells us that the judgments, the statutes of God, that they are right, they are true, and it uses this word. They are plain. I would not be a good father if I meted out judgment against one of my children on a confusing commandment. The judgment is only really righteous if I have been very clear and said, this is what we, you are to do, and this is not what you are to do. If it's confusing, that poor kid doesn't even know what is required of them. And God is the same way with us in his word. He is so clear. When he talked to Joshua about going into certain places when they were conquering the land, there were some tough commandments. Some of those places, he said, these people have such horrible idol worship, and their culture is so degraded. I don't want your people to even see with their eyes what goes on in there. You burn it to the ground. You don't leave a, a man, a woman, a child, not even their beasts in some of them. Sometimes they took their property and they kept it for a spoil. And some of them, he said, I don't want anything taken out of there. Destroy it all. And Joshua was held responsible for carrying that out. We live here today and sometimes we think, man, that sure sounds harsh. Well, what was harsh was what was going on in that culture. People that were sacrificing their kids to some crazy idea of a God 
And God wanted that stuff ended so that it would never come back. His judgments are plain. He, he will not, I don't think you can, you can read in the Bible and think and find where the character of God is. He is going to judge us for things that we were unsure about. Or at least that were presented in a confusing manner in the Bible. He's very clear. So this is God's nature. He's very clear about what he wants. And when somebody reads it and they believe him and they say, I, I, I just happen to believe what he says and they follow through, God has an enormous reward. Let's, go, we'll, let's finish with one example back in Joshua. Go to Joshua chapter 10, I believe. Let's... No. Hold on here. Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2, in verse 1, he sends out two spies to go into Jericho. And you know the story of Jericho, an enormously walled city. And in verse 2, it was told the king of Jericho that there have come men in hither tonight of the children of Israel to search out the country. And in verse 3, the king of Jericho sends unto Rahab, saying, Bring forth the men that are come to thee, which are entered into thine house, for they be come to search out all the country. Later on, this tells us that Rahab lived on the wall. The walls were so thick in Jericho that people lived on those walls. They were that thick. There was no danger of falling off. It wasn't, you didn't have to, it wasn't a high wire act. She lived on the wall. When the spies came over, they found her. She talks to them and tells them, we have heard that how God dried up waters before you and our hearts are melting. And they told her, God is going to destroy this city. And she said, I will save your life for mine. She said, I'll make sure that nothing happens to you. I'll hide you in my house. If when you come to destroy, you take me, my father's house, everybody that's with me, alive. Now, the king of Jericho comes to Rahab. I would like for you to imagine one of the more fearful government agencies to knock on your door tonight. Whether it be ICE, the ATF, the FBI, the NSA, whatever it may be. And they come and they demand that you give up certain information. That can be a very intimidating circumstance. And what does Rahab do? I've heard people say that when Rahab did not offer the information about those two spies, that she was actually disappointing God because she lied. You can't find that in this story. You can find where God rewards Rahab for hiding his people, for being on his side. If you continue to read your Bible after this story, because it does happen this way, Rahab tells the king of Jericho, she said, yes, they were with me. They came to my house, but they got down over the wall just about the time the gate was being closed, and they're gone. If you hurry, maybe you can catch them. And the king sends his people out after looking for those men, and where are they at during that time? They're hiding in the stalks of her roof on her house. She has hid them up there, and she then lets them down, and they head off back to the Israel camp when it's safe. And because of that, because Rahab 
looked at the earth and thought, God's going to destroy this. He, he's not pleased with, with what goes on in Jericho. I'm taking the side of his people. That is a form of obedience. That was a form of faith. And the Bible tells us that when Rahab was taken alive with her family into Israel, she married a guy. She married a guy and they had a son, a son that they named Obed. Obed would grow up and he would have a son named Jesse. And Jesse would have a son named David. God made it work so that the King David had a great-grandmother named Rahab, who was a harlot, who was somebody who was not even a covenant child, but because of her obedience to fall in line with God, he didn't just save her life. She's recorded in Matthew, in the lineage of, Je of Jesus, that for all time everybody would know where Jesus came from. He came through the lineage Rahab. That's the power of obedience. It's the power of turning and following God. God rewards obedience. Remarkably so. And in the end, sometimes he has some very harsh judgments for disobedience. It's one of the reasons that God in his church, he needs clear preaching. Somebody gets up and preaches, and people walk out the door, and they're really confused about what God even thinks about a topic, a subject. Don't even know which way to go if they, to follow God, to please Him. That's a disaster in God's eyes. He always wants people, and this is what, is pastor not the best at this, at being so clear about certain subjects? Picking it apart, taking it, breaking it down, preaching the same thing over and over. He, and I don't mean he's... he's never has something new to, to preach about. I mean, he doesn't change his mind about what the Bible says on these topics. Thank God for good leadership like that. Very, very different than what goes on in a great part of our culture where one month a church may believe something and two months later they may all get together and vote and say, I don't think the Bible says that anymore. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the rewards that you have for your obedient children and your servants. And we pray, Lord, that each one of us would be encouraged and strengthened to follow that example, that we would be like Joshua, that we might leave nothing undone that you have commanded us. We pray, Lord, that you would inspire us and help us to desire the, the path for us in your word that we would always be raised and follow the admonition of the Lord. Lord, we pray and thank you so much for Pastor and Tiff that you have sent to us. Prosper them, keep them in health and joy and peace in their home. In Jesus' name, amen.